The so-called mutual fund window, it's a virtual window, at the thrift savings plan could disappear if a congressional policy becomes law. A House Judicial Committee would bar funds relying on corporate environment, social or governance sensitivities, ESG. Certified financial planner Arthur Stein joins me now with what he's discovered about ESG funds. And golly, nothing seems to be going right for this whole gambit, though, does it, Art? I feel like the uh, TSP, when I think about it, it's like no good deed goes unpunished. Here they, you know, they've had complaints throughout the years that they didn't have enough choices, and they are very few, the the number of choices in terms of investment sectors. And so they put in this mutual fund window, uh, which contains, for people who use it, there are about 4,600 funds in it. And um, every type of investment you can make with a mutual fund is pretty much included. And so it's great in that sense, but very few people have used it. I mean, like, very few. Well, let me ask you this on the few people using it. I mean, people invest in their TSP. There's a check off from their paycheck. So the mutual fund window, how does it operate? That is to say, can you have some of your weekly deduction or your, your every other week deduction from your paycheck go to one of those? Because those aren't strictly LG funds, et cetera, of the TSP. It's not super easy to use. I mean, the money that goes in the mutual fund window has to come from one of the traditional TSP funds, and then it can go in the mutual fund window. There are various restrictions on how much you can put in, minimums and things, and once the money is in there, it goes into a money market fund, and then you can invest in all these other funds. Problem. One problem is that the fees for the mutual fund window are high. There's there's no question about it. And these are the fees it, charged by the thrift savings plan. In some cases, yes. There are two uh, annual fees of one hundred and five dollars. Then there's a, a trading fee of twenty eight seventy five. I don't know that I doubt that goes to the TSP in any form. You know, whoever is running this for the TSP probably keeps that money. But in, by today's standards, that's a pretty high trading fee. It sure is, yeah. And then the mutual funds have their expense fees, um, which, as far as I can tell, may be a little above average for mutual funds, but are certainly going to be higher than the funds that are currently in the TSP. Well, let me ask you this. If a federal employee wanted to invest in mutual funds – and somehow have it as pre-tax dollars because the TSP is the equivalent of an IRA for everybody else, is there a way that they could lessen what they put in the official TSP accounts and then just spend their own money on a mutual fund and that could be an IRA for them and they would still have the same tax structure? No, I would say no. That if you want to buy mutual funds with your TSP money, this is the only way to do it. it. Okay. If you want to transfer, if you're over 59 and a half, you can transfer money out of the TSP into an IRA, and then you'd have more than 4,600 or 5,000 funds to invest in lower trading fees. And so that's something that people can always do. I mean, you can always invest not in an IRA or pre-tax or, fashion or, or just you because could you're just an investor. invest, as you say, in a regular brokerage account, individual account, which is taxable 
And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Because what I'm getting at is maybe the whole TSP's window for mutual funds was maybe not something that needed to exist in the first place, given the take-up of it and given the kind of complicated, convoluted costs and procedures to take advantage of it. Well, I think you're right. And, you know, from the investor's point of view, especially if they're over 59 and a half and can transfer the money out, they can easily, you know, set up an IRA and then do whatever they want. From the TSP's point of view, they're trying to do what their customers want, their customers being TSP participants, and they did, but they had to do it in a certain way with certain expenses because they wanted to make sure that the cost of the mutual fund window was only paid for with money from the people who were using the mutual fund window. And that's one of the reasons you have $105 in an, $150 in annual fees. And so, you know, that was inevitable. Then they get into this other thing, uh, which is that, of course, some of these funds invest in what are called ESG investments, environmental, social, and governance. And that these are mutual funds where they're uh, going to services at rate companies according to how well they do on an ESG store, ESG score, and then they invest in those only. And I counted, uh, there are 37 funds that have ESG in their name. Anyway, in Congress, uh, and you know, it's become a political issue. A lot of Republicans don't like ESG investments. Okay, so there is a bill in Congress that would forbid the TSP from having e any ESG funds in any part of it, and apparently that includes the mutual fund window. And I think TSP feels like if that passes, they're going to have to cancel the whole thing because they cannot regulate these 4,600 funds. And I agree with them because funds have a wide latitude in what they invest in, and they change, and it's just probably not possible for them to do. And Tom, you may remember that a couple of years ago, I think it was, they were going to change the index for the I fund in the TSP, the International Stock Index Fund, which they need to do. I mean, that would have been a good thing. But members of Congress found out that the fund they were considering, which they had decided to use actually, included investments in Chinese companies and protested, sure. and that whole thing ended. Well, there are 18 funds in this mutual fund window that have China in their name. They're specifically investing in China. So that could be an issue, too. Well, there's an interesting question here, though. The members of Congress that were trying to put an end to the ESG funds within the mutual fund window, again, if that is even possible, kept talking about taxpayer dollars invested in ESG or woke funds. You may or may not want to invest in this type of fund. You know, personally, I would do guns, alcohol, and gasoline or something, but whatever. Motorcycles. <laughs> Motorcycles, right. <laughs> if it burns, it turns. But the question is, that's not really taxpayer dollars at all. What no. This is a voluntary program. The only money going into these funds is going to be the funds of TSP participants. So it's got nothing to do with the government. And because it's been set up 
so that the mutual fund window is self-supporting. There's not going to be any cost to the TSP to run this and set it up. There's no government money involved. Certified financial planner Art Stein, as always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, 
calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, 
Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.